Mike's Video Game Podcast. I miss you, Mike. Hello and welcome to Mike's Video Game Podcast. I'm Mike Ag. And I'm Mike Wu. And this is episode eight, or as we like to call it, our listener appreciation episode. This is our our new annual listener appreciation <laughs> episode. So yeah, that sounds about right. But uh, yeah, how you doing, Mike? Doing all right. I am well protected by a fort of foam right now. We're trying something new. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I have a tablecloth made of flock, which for those of you who don't play uh, tabletop wargaming, flock is, it simulates little tiny miniature blades of grass. Think of turf. And then I've got some foam all over the place, some blankets hanging up, um, yeah, because why not? I figure I'm not going to be in a studio, but I might as well just put crap all over my basement because, eh, whatever. feels professional, I suppose. Yeah, it looks <laughs> like we're playing Battlefield with old pieces of foam covered in dog hair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very professional. Oh, that's how, how we like to do it. And then I forget <laughs> to turn the volume off on my actual laptops. So we pick up a nice little chi- chime there. Um, yeah, so um, we kind of missed a week there, but, you know, travel schedule yeah. and whatnot. Just got back from L.A. You just got back from Miami? That's right. Oh, yeah. Right, fantastic. Uh, warm weather in Miami? Yeah, beautiful weather. Okay. I got to uh, swim with manta rays, uh, not by design. It was, we were just out on the beach and oh, uh, yeah? saw a gray shape in the water, went out to check it out. And so it more was, accurately, uh, manta rays swam, swam with you. you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pretty cool. I don't trust them ever since the crocodile hunter incident. <laughs> That's a stingray. Yeah, These are the you giant know manta rays. Are you know, manta rays, <laughs> stingrays, Jimmy Ray. I don't trust any of them, right? So I just stay away from all of it. So... So for this episode, instead of uh, us coming up with topics, we have actually received quite a bit of questions and topics and stuff from people who listen, so yay. Uh, And we figured we'd just talk about some of those because, you know, we're lazy and we didn't really come up with any topics on our own. So this first one is actually one that I find really enjoyable as a topic because it's one I, I talk about quite often, which is... Basically, how do control schemes of characters, right? Uh, how do they affect gameplay experience, um, the worlds, the design, that sort of stuff? Um, that question is from Adam. We've got quite a few questions from Adam and other folks here, so I'll just say your name out. So, hi, Adam. Hi, um, Adam. Um, hello. So, um, this is something I, I like to talk about a lot, um, specifically because I'm, I will often say I do not like click-to-move mechanics. Um, that's something <laughs> that I used to kind of enjoy. Um, and, and as I've played more and more games and work with games, they're, they're a control scheme that I really don't like. Because to me, it feels a lot like I'm no longer the player. I'm just sitting there telling the player where they're supposed to go. And that kind of takes away from a lot of the immersion in my, my perspective, right? Um, now, 2D and 3D, it really depends on the design elements of the game as whether or not there's immersion there and stuff. But uh, what are your thoughts on that, Mike? Because I, so, I talk about it all the time. Yeah, and so I actually have the opposite perspective, which is I really like point-to-click mechanics because it's fewer inputs to get the character to go where I want them to go. I just mm-hmm. click there, and the uh, navigation system will find the character, you know, sure. the path for the character. So it's less effort on my part to get the intended result, which is I want to see this character over here. And I tend to like the fact that, ooh, I'm bossing the character oh, around. I see. So you don't yeah. feel like the character, though? Uh, I identify with the character, but mm-hmm. I don't think I am literal, literally am that character. Okay. You know, if it's a third-person game, mm-hmm. you know, Laura Croft is Laura Croft, but mm-hmm. I am trying to make decisions, you know, 
for Lawrence so that to I assist get, Laura. Yeah, to basically see the story I want to see unfold. Like, I think Laura, if she were smart, she'd go to that corner and then jump off or oh, okay. go to that position and shoot. So I'm going to instruct her to go do that. Um, I don't think of myself as Laura Croft. Um, but that's, that is a very interesting debate, the whole first person versus third person what is what is immersion? Is immersion I am in the game, or is it I understand the world and what's going on and what the character is physically doing? Sure. I mean, I suppose if you want to do like the technical thing, right? Immersion that flow mm-hmm. is basically where your consciousness turns off mm-hmm. and the part of your brain that knows, hey, this isn't a real experience. That part goes to sleep, mm-hmm. and so what you're left is the the more primal, instinctual parts of your brain, which have no idea that you're not Laura Croft, or mm-hmm. have no idea that you're not really riding a dragon, at the back of your brain is going, I'm riding a dragon, <laughs> right. rock and roll, right? Because right? right. the front part of your brain is asleep, because mm-hmm. immersion uh, it has turned it off. Mm-hmm. And um, so for me, point-to-click is just commonly this whole, like, I'm not playing the game, mm-hmm. or I'm not in the mm-hmm. game, I'm not in the game, I'm not in the game. And it really helps me kind of really get into it. Which f- was really kind of like why I really associated it so much with uh, Diablo 3 on the console. Because on PC, I played it a lot. But again, it was more of a, I played it with my friends, mm-hmm. not necessarily because I was super immersed, but just because it was kind of an activity. Mm-hmm. Um, however, on the console, uh, they got rid of Click the Move, obviously, because you have a controller. So it was more like a beat-em-up, and I could really get into it. And I really liked it um, in that format. So, yeah, being part of the character is super important. Now, a lot of people... You know, they think simpler input mechanics make it easier to get into immersion, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I don't know what your opinions of that are. I, I, I personally believe that that's probably accurate. The less you have to think about what you're trying to make the character do to make them actually mm-hmm. do it, kind of like what you were saying, mm-hmm. the more likely you are to just sort of slide into that role. Um, I don't quite have that sensation personally because I'm fairly good with a controller. I've grown mm-hmm. up with it, you mm-hmm. know, my whole life. And so complex control schemes are not really that, they don't really break immersion for me, but I could see other players who maybe aren't as comfortable with a controller or um, are looking for a more simple gameplay experience, but very much prefer simpler mechanics. Yeah. I, and that's interesting because, yeah, you grew up with the um, console generation. Uh, I mean, your generation never knew a world without consoles, whereas mm-hmm. uh people my age remember a world without computers, right? And sure, then computers yeah. and consoles came out and coming from an Asian background, my parents were like, an Atari, that's just for games. Mm-hmm. We're going to get you an Apple computer because that's for education. Sure. Of course, we only used it for games. For games, right. But now <laughs> I'm I'm raised on what would become PC gaming. So mm-hmm. I'm used to that environment. And uh, from my perspective, the control schemes um, from games for games used to be really, really complex. I mean, the number of verbs, so to speak, that a player could initiate used every single key on the keyboard. Sure. If you played like an old role-playing game, the mm-hmm. equivalent of a World of Warcraft would have been uh, the Ultimate series, you know, even though it was only a single-player game. Right, right. From A to Z, all those keys meant something, mm-hmm. and all the numbers meant something. Mm-hmm. They're all very different um, actions that a party or a character All the hot keys take. and yeah. commands. Now, and if you're play. If you were to play a role-playing game, you know, especially on a console or something, you know, that's context-sensitive buttons. So, you know, mm-hmm. I press X and it does whatever it needs to be done at that, that moment. That was really kind of the problem with the um, Dragon Age Origins, right? Playing it on the console, there were two – there were there was a radio menu inside of a radio menu mm-hmm. doing anything. took so many mm-hmm. controller key presses and everyone was like, you've got to play it on a keyboard, right? Because there's mm-hmm. all these – 
hotkeys. Yeah. And then this third iteration, Dragon Age Inquisitions, I didn't like it on a keyboard because they really simplified the UI. So it's like, oh, you got to play it on a controller, right? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. from my perspective, I guess I've always grown up um, or, or believed that software starts out complex and it becomes simpler and simpler mm-hmm. to control and use over time. And that's the ultimate. So when Point and Click came out for graphic adventures or for um, RTSs, Mm-hmm. Or, um, or MOBAs, it's like, oh, yeah, that's that's a very elegant way of saying, instead of pressing left, right, forward, back, oh, my God, pressing forward all constantly, and then yeah. uh, once in a while, Because it would never go on. the way you wanted it to yeah. anyway, yeah. because it wasn't a refined yeah. process. Yeah, yet. so just click, and it'll get there, and then meanwhile, I can worry about my next strategic mm-hmm. decision, whatever. Right, right, yeah. yeah. I remember the King's Quest games, mm-hmm. Hero Quest, uh, oh, man, just all of those, mm-hmm. yeah. The point-to-click, yeah. I used to be super into those because those were the only option, mm-hmm. right? Um, kind of going back to console versus PC, you know, I was five when we had a console in the house. I think I think we had Pong or we were borrowing it. I was, that, that was kind of too far back for me to remember, but I definitely we had a Nintendo Entertainment System, mm-hmm. right? But I was 10 before I got my first computer, and at that point, it was one that I just mowed lawns to buy. It was old at that point point mm-hmm. even you know so i was older than that even when i realized you can play games on computers <laughs> like oh my god right and then obviously you learn that that's kind of used to be the only way you could play and so on and you get an appreciation for that but uh, but it's but it is interesting you know this whole concept of, of complex control schemes versus simple control schemes because you know you can take it i like complex control schemes mm-hmm. right I, I feel that those kind of give you very a lot of options in the game, which gives you a lot of agency, which makes you feel very much like you're in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you take a game like uh, Heavy Rain, right, uh, where it was very simple controls with these sort of cinematic button sequences, which I know button sequences are kind of like uh, Pog was, right, a fad thing that right. was like super yeah. popular and now everyone like hates them. But um, I think done correctly in a very cinematic environment, dumbing down the inputs to such a point where you just sort of melt into the storyline is, is really quite cool. Yeah. I don't really have much of an opinion of it 2D versus 3D, though, because I think it really depends on the context of the game and the design. Yeah. You mean – well, let refresh my memory. The question – the original question is, is – Is how you control the players. Okay. How you control the players. Like what are the differences between, um, say, third person and – First person. Yeah, the actual question is how character controllers, in this context meaning how you control the character, mm-hmm. uh, 2D, comma, 3D, comma, first person shooter, connect players to game worlds. Okay. Yeah, yeah like, well, the advantage of first person is uh, the obvious, well, uh, it's through your eye. Mm-hmm. You know, not, I wouldn't say eyes but until we have the, the Oculus Rift and the Valve system and all that stuff. Yeah, it's, they simulate it's a, enough, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it simulates 3D vision sort of on a 2D screen. So it's really a camera eye. It's a lens mm-hmm. right in the middle of your head. It's a trick. Yeah, yeah, it's a trick. So you feel like I am controlling where the camera is. And so therefore it's me. Um, so that's the obvious trick there. But it has a limitation of when I crouch, I don't see a body in the crouching position. So I don't start to feel that sensation of I'm crouched down. I just, mm-hmm. my mm-hmm. perspective maybe shifts downward, but that's it. Versus say a third person shooter, uh, where you'd see the character take cover and you're like, whoa, this character is hunched down and I mm-hmm. feel that sensation, the pressure in the knees, the weight. And all Gears of War really gave yeah. me that yeah. first third-person yeah. cinematic effect. Yeah. So there there are arguments 
for and against, you know, sure. both of those. It really depends on what you're trying to express. Convey. Uh, yeah, yeah, convey as for the experience. Um, is it the sense of control and that you are the player versus uh, we want you to understand what the character is doing mm-hmm. and then have a sensation of what it, it is like physically to be there? Absolutely. Context of the game really matters too. I mean, the more abstract a game is, the more abstracted control scheme has mm-hmm. to be so that the immersion sort of fits. And I mean, to a great example, or I guess a great example, I'm, I'm judging my own example, I, I would assume a great example would be something like um, Ori in the Blind Forest is mm-hmm. a very stylized, very aesthetically driven, very abstract style game. If you gave me a very realistic first person, like 3D character control scheme, it would feel very out of place because the whole world is just so... Willy Wonka, mm-hmm. right? But inversely, like if you take, you know, um, a more realistic game like, say, uh, Heavy Rain and you try to make it just a 2D side-scroller, then all of a sudden that doesn't match up either because it's almost too abstract when you really want to put yourself in the game. So context is really the most important part in my opinion. You know, match having the control scheme match the style and the intention of the game. Mm-hmm. And then I think the second part you said it was like how a, um, not the player control scheme, but the dimensions of the world is. Oh like yeah, I hadn't gotten to that. That was okay. a, so that was the second part. Okay. Here. I'll bring it up now because yeah. we can segue into that. So the second part is is how does the dimensionality affect the experience? Right, two D versus three D. Okay. Um, so like, what was the example sort of given, and then I'll I'll prey upon mm. was what was sort of the difference in experience between playing Mario. 2D versus, say, like the first Mario 64, the 3D Mario, mm-hmm. or any of the subsequent mm-hmm. 3D Mario games, or any really like Metroid or any mm-hmm. equivalent, Castlevania, so on and so forth. All right. Um, okay, let, let's, let me put a mental note here. I don't think we finished one thought, which was about control schemes. You mentioned complexity and control scheme for mm-hmm. the player c- character. Mm-hmm. And um, I think nowadays we also have to talk about competitive play and how control scheme is important in that regard too. Mm-hmm. Like where complexity, does it allow me to um, uh, demonstrate mastery at a higher level? Like there's a control scheme that's simple enough for me to understand the, and play mm-hmm. the basic game. But if I'm willing to micromanage this particular portion of the input like i can interrupt animations or i can yeah. uh i can shorten the reload times and all that kind of stuff how that enhances uh play for some people and i think maybe you are that type of player whereas i don't know that that i am see that's, so that's quite funny because i was uh, about to mention that anyone listening right now could tell you were a starcraft player just from the way you described <laughs> yeah. that because that is so not me okay like i like complex uh-huh. control schemes and stuff like mm-hmm. that but everything you're describing, like the actions per minute yeah, and stuff like yeah. that, is straight out of real-time strategy, <laughs> like competitive StarCraft play and things like that. So I don't know. Like I know that's your jam. Well, actually, mm-hmm. I suppose yeah. not if you swore it off yeah, because right. <laughs> you got, got mad about it one day. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's a very – I suppose a very different approach or concept or whatever is uh, this whole you know competitive gameplay kind of – Turns everything on its on its side, right. right? I mean, like, look at the popularity of certain Twitch channels. Mm-hmm. They are all about the games with a control scheme that ostensibly is simple. It's a this is a two D uh, puzzle game, but controlling the nuance because of the inertia and the physics and whatnot is so difficult that solving this is nigh impossible. And everybody yeah. loves watching these replays. Oh, oh my God, he almost didn't. No, he didn't. Yes, he did. But see, no, he did. what you've you've hit upon something that's not unique 
to video games, really, though, take the concept of watching sports. I can play basketball. You can play mm-hmm. basketball. But we can't really play basketball. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. again, you've just described, we can all do this, mm-hmm. but we can't all actually mm-hmm. do this, which is what makes watching it so like, I know everything this person is doing, but I'm still blown away that this person right, is, right. is actually doing this. It's like uh, witnessing really good music or, yeah, like watching mm-hmm. professional sports. It's like mm-hmm. we appreciate the control and mastery it takes to be able to pull off these things against a machine. Yeah. Right? It's like, um, so... Uh, anyways, we'll that's, out the I think that was the one on. the one hanging idea that I, I wanted us to talk about that I think we, we well, missed before it, moving on to It does allude to an interesting idea yeah. too, though. Is immersion important in multiplayer games? Is immersion important in competitive games? What immerses you? Is it the game that immerses you or is it the competition that immerses you? You know, is it one of those things is would you be equally as satisfied being so, beating someone in StarCraft as you would an arm wrestling match or a pie eating contest mm-hmm. or a basketball game or is it the competitiveness that puts you into it or is it the actual gameplay? No, no. for me, uh, uh, it's not the gameplay. It really is the uh, content. Like, mm-hmm. I believe that group of Marines got you get into the massacred. story. Right, right. Yeah, okay. you believed like those little dots. Like you're saying, you shut off that whatever, that frontal part of your brain. Yeah. Just, mm-hmm. These are just pixels, dude. But you're like, no, you're like, no. no yeah, yeah. These little guys who are trying to thwart my expectations and my dominance mm-hmm. or my control or my ability to just live in peace on this map. These little, you know, guys yeah. who are screwing around with me, you know, got what was coming to them. And mm-hmm. so I feel really good about that. Um <laughs> Yes, but also a large part of it is the meta where it's like, I'm going to fake, I think I could fake this player out. Mm-hmm. Looking at how they're, you know, doing certain things, I think if I did this and instead of this, they would fall for this trap. And then to see, you know, almost like pantomime, this person fall into the trap or not mm-hmm. uh, is really thrilling because it's like, whoa, it's like I'm creating uh, nice. a situation. You're creating your own narrative. Basically. Yeah, yeah. It's it's yeah. sort of like when you were a little kid and you're out in the backyard and you're like, oh, wouldn't it be great if a rabbit actually tried to eat this carrot that I put underneath this box? Mm-hmm. And you wait and you wait, wait, and then something happens and you try it and you it doesn't work. But, but, but whatever, it's like that was just mm-hmm. the fantasy of – I could actually have my own rabbit and nice. it, and I could do it by outsmarting Your it in this Patsy. way. <laughs> yeah, right. And so, it's like, and so, you could do the yeah. same thing in a video game on a competitive level. And totally. I mean, that's kind of like the, the, the enjoyment of a Marine. It really is real to you. Those are real Marines. They're mm-hmm. your friends. I, you know, I was upset when Eris died. I think everyone mm-hmm. was right. Um, because you lose that. But again, it's just so funny. The big differences in gaming between me and you, because you have these, you have these thoughts, right? Uh-huh. You have these plans and you have this story behind this and these traps and this, I'm playing a game and I'm just walking around in my in my head all I'm hearing is just you suck, you suck, I killed you, I killed you, oh, I died, that was cheap. Okay, you suck, you suck. That's literally it. That's the only thing happening in my head right now. And so it's just I mean, you like describe these symphonies of thought and plan and, and I'm just like, you suck. You That's why suck. I only play one V one. I don't play team I'm games because you don't want to like teammates berate you over how Yeah, I just I don't I don't say it out loud. <laughs> yeah. You know, I try to be courteous, but that's what that's the <laughs> only thing happening in my head is like I'm better than you. I'm better than you. I bet I'm better than you. And then I'm dead and I'm just like, oh that was stupid. I was better than that person. You know, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Like very different <laughs> gameplay experiences. Okay. Anyway, digression over. Um yeah, so uh, this whole idea of like, okay, so user experience, we'll call it user narrative, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, between 2D and 3D games, how you approach those. And so I, I, I'm taking the example of Mario quite literally um, because it's something that was written and asked about. But to me anyway, you know, granted that 
that Mario was there at the birth of my gaming experience, right? My real first gaming experience was before even it was my gaming experience. My dad was obsessed with Mario on the NES. It's the only game he's ever played <laughs> and the only game yeah. he's ever played since. And he, you know, just trying to beat it, trying to beat it. And this was before guides, before the mm-hmm. internet, all this stuff. And I remember like 2 o'clock in the morning you know, on a school night, my dad waking me and my brother up and making us come downstairs. We're like, what is happening? <laughs> he had saved the princess. Yeah. And he had beaten <laughs> Bowser. That's great. And he was like, he woke everyone up. He's right. like, I finally did yeah. it. And that instilled something in me, yeah. that moment of greatness. And he yeah. turned it off and never touched the game again. <laughs> right. And never touched any game again. <laughs> and because it, it was enough. That yeah. was yeah. And uh, and so then I've just guess, been on a this lifelong journey for that that high, I yeah. guess, where the, where you're finally like, that was enough. I've done it. But to we me, used to take pic- people used to take film, you know, old yeah. film. <laughs> I remember beating Polaroids um, fi- yeah, what was his name? King unscreens. Hippo in uh-huh. uh, Punch Out. Yeah. Right? Is that was that his name? Yeah, I think so. And I remember beating him and my mom taking a picture of me <laughs> with a camera, like standing in front of the screen, like I beat King because it was so hard. Right. But um but so to me, in that regard, I'm not gonna say all 2D games uh-huh. because like I felt very compelled by Ori and the Blind Force. I bring that up yeah. a lot because it was just I think it was yeah. a great game. But for like Mario or Sonic or mm-hmm. even Castlevania. Those games represent a skill challenge, being 2D, like I'm going to beat this, I'm Mm going to do this. That whole precise inertial (laughs) movement that you had (laughs) described, right? That's what 2D games kind of are to me in general. There are exceptions, right? Uh, Like this War of Mine was a very emotional (laughs) style immersion-based game. But for most games, 2D games are a bit of all about the puzzle or the challenge. But as soon as you bring 3D into it, like Mario 64, this 3D game, which is still very much just a Mario game, but at the same time, now you're... You're in it. It kind of you kind of start becoming interested by the story and who is this character and 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 you know when you say hey I'm jumping or I'm being attacked by this enemy in a two D game you just sort of mean it in a general sense but to me in a three D game you kind of actually mean it right oh I'm being mm-hmm. attacked right mm-hmm. um, and so three D games in my opinion kind of really aid in that immersion a little bit better than two D does because two D really is such an abstract concept mm-hmm. since we mm-hmm. live in the three D world. Yeah. Um- for me, 2D is akin to, uh, let's say, we've, we, you know, if there was a giant outside of your house and he was able to rip the roof off and look into the mm-hmm. basement and look into the basement room, the giant could see everything mm-hmm. perfectly mm-hmm. Uh, and then be able to say, oh, if the two mics wanted to navigate out of this room, I know exactly what they have to do. Uh, they would have to, you know, uh, get up and then turn right and then they go up the stairs and they'd be out. But in a third person uh, or, oh, sorry, that's in, not in how a, you would get out of my house. <laughs> in a first-person uh, view, uh, you are like, well, I'm in the basement. I'm at out. the table, but I don't know what's behind me. I actually have to turn there to look. Mm-hmm. And so that immediately begs you know, that mystery, that question, that exploration. And it's interesting that you, you put up um, one of your um, one of your first inclinations when you're playing Mario 64 is like, you know, where am I? Where am I going? You know, it, you're asking mm-hmm. yourself all these questions. In a 2D game, the whole world is, well, that map or that level, mm-hmm. especially in old, old school games where it was a static level, um, all the information is put right in front of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you need to do is very clear. I have to eat all the dots and I can see every single dot. I know mm-hmm. where every single ghost is and, or I know where uh, every barrel is. I know where Donkey Kong is. I know where uh, Peach is. I know all those things. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of getting there is really hard. Sure. Uh, whereas in a third person, uh, maybe you just push forward and you put something in the middle of the screen and you 
pulling the trigger and it dies and it's done. It's simple. Mm-hmm. But it's the finding where you have to go sure. that becomes more difficult. There are uh, very unique yeah. design elements yeah. to it. And, and it goes back, again, to that player control scheme. Uh, when I talked about uh, Ultima having an action associated with every key on the keyboard, you know, you could think of that as a player input verb. Mm-hmm. And then that would create in the software um, – you know, an action on screen, you know, another mm-hmm. verb, a sure. software verb, I guess. Sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then that would create output to the screen for me to observe. And so now I'm doing acting out the verb of vision. Mm-hmm. I'm either reading my score or reading text or dissecting up the composition of the graphics presented to me to try to get information out of it. That whole cycle of me as a player creating verbs mm-hmm. or enacting verbs and then the software reacting with, I guess that's interactivity. It's the... Inputs and outputs. Maybe that's really what Adam is asking is how how, um, does one's decisions about inputs and outputs affect the style of the game? Maybe. The control one has in the game. And it's like, because I can imagine, um, I've used this example in classes before. There's an old arcade game called Track and Field Mm -hmm. where to run, there was simply two round buttons Mm -hmm. on the on the front of the machine and you just slapped one that was your left foot and you slapped the other that was your right foot and you just alternate back and forth slap 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 but on a visceral level excuse me i almost Mm -hmm. uh, coughed right there on a visceral level it mimics the back and forth left right left right motion of our legs take it a step further to quap where oh yeah (laughs) yes and that's all it is is four buttons then right but um whereas in our uh, our nature is to learn how to walk when we're infants mm-hmm. to the point where we don't even think about individual muscles. We just think the impulse, left foot, right foot, and, you know, mm-hmm. almost not, we don't, don't even think left foot, right foot. We just start walking. Well, it's, right? yeah, it's and instinctual. So the, you just sort of hurl yourself against gravity and your <laughs> foot just goes out and catches right, you. Right. And so this game is using a metaphor of slapping buttons is running. Mm-hmm. Whereas Quap says, Coordinating, the yeah, process. yeah, yeah. I'm going to actually make the metaphor. Coordinating the inputs of these four buttons is control is contracting and relaxing muscles. Mm-hmm. Well, who thinks about running as the contraction and relaxation of muscles? Nobody. And that's why Quap is such a hard game versus track and field, which is. But it also makes you realize why you fell down so much when you were learning mm-hmm. how to walk. Yes, because it yeah. really is that hard. <laughs> right. And that, and even Quap is a simplified version mm-hmm. of what. Is actually involved in walking yeah. with all your toes and ankles and whatever. Yeah. So maybe it took us half an hour to get to the essence of the question, which is the metaphor you apply to the inputs and outputs. Mm-hmm. I'm going to explain to you this output in terms of this simple input. Yeah. Well, generally speaking, and in the case of Quap, it's not simple input. Mm-hmm. But, but here's yet it is. It is still it's a simple input. It's just four buttons. <laughs> That's I true. Mean, but it's the games, coordinating of yeah. those buttons. And so maybe there's another element to this. It's not just the the input actions themselves, but the relationship between those input actions Mm -hmm. and the resulting action on screen. Mm -hmm. Because I think, isn't there like a, it always seemed to me like I didn't quite know if I had done the right thing in co-op until it was like two seconds too late. And it's like, now I'm in an uncontrolled fall. I can't do anything about it. Versus track and field, the character immediately responds to that slap. And either it's on or off. And either I got it or I didn't. Sped up or slow down. And so there's a relationship between what I put into the system, what I get out, and Mm -hmm. my ability to read that, that also has an impact on the feel, so to speak, of the control scheme. So it becomes kind of this um, recipe, if you will. Mm -hmm. I mean, ideally, all games, and then we'll, we'll focus on video games, simplify all actions, right? 
there's nothing you're ever going to do in a game that's as complex mm-hmm. as doing it in real life, mm-hmm. right? Um, Co-op is a great example of how even just four buttons is still a super simplified version of actually walking, mm-hmm. um, yet it's incredibly difficult. So all games are going to simplify your inputs, your controls, right? And so your priority then is to take actions that don't actually matter and removing them completely. Mm-hmm. I don't focus on breathing or blinking right. in a game. Right. I don't focus on actually putting the armor on. Mm-hmm. I just selected it's on. Mm-hmm. You know, So I remove, abstract away all of mm-hmm. those inputs. And then the ones that are important to me, running or shooting or uh, grabbing something or catching a ball or whatever, I simplify as much as I can or I want based on the design philosophies of the game. And we've still... Even with games that are, have highly complex controls, we see a trend towards simpler control schemes always. Uh, if, I don't know if you remember the ill-fated Z-board, right? The Z-board was that keyboard that had the, inter- the removable faces to it so you can get a face uh-huh. for your different games uh-huh. um, where the keys were all replaced with mm-hmm. keys that had the names of the hotkeys right. and stuff on it. Well, you know, that didn't work out for a lot of reasons. But, uh, but that was kind of, of an era where the keyboard games were still very complex, and so you needed these reminders of what all these buttons mm-hmm. did. Um, but, I mean, it's really not necessary anymore. I mean, we've kind of refined keyboard input a lot and, 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 and uh, controller input a lot. Um, and so it then becomes, okay, I can simplify this. How simple do I want it to be? How complex of an operation is aiming and shooting a gun? How complex mm-hmm. of an operation is throwing a grenade? And, and that becomes the true crux of input design. There is no right or wrong at that point. Once you've removed everything that doesn't matter and simplified everything that does matter, then it becomes, okay, in this genre, for this target audience, if with this gameplay narrative intention, in this dimensionality, what is the perfect path to give me an immersive game that retains some level of complexity but also is easy enough for your consciousness just to fall mm-hmm. into it? And that sounds like a lot of words to describe a very, very complex process that it really kind of makes or breaks every game, mm-hmm. right? Because you do that part wrong and the rest of the game doesn't matter. Right, right. Yeah. Um, the important thing is is that the, the actions that you ask of the player uh, should, in general, simplify the uh, – our should be simple enough to help us understand a more complex – uh, reality uh, sure. in the game, right? Mm-hmm. The act of shooting is actually a lot of things going on, mm-hmm. but for you, it's uh, moving the reticle with, uh, you know, with the left stick or something like that. Sure. You know? um, in general, you'll always see a game designer trying to translate or use a metaphor again uh, mm-hmm. to use that to, to say, "I ha- I want you to understand this idea of targeting a gun mm-hmm. through the." vocabulary of a very uh, you know very simple vocabulary of uh controller in your hand which has two sticks and a couple of buttons Mm -hmm. um and so i think yeah i think that's the crux of it is how can i simplify this very complex idea um even if shooting doesn't seem like a complex idea at this point it is actually a lot of a lot of things going on especially in a three-dimensional world you know like what are you actually pointing at in the three-dimensional world the horizon the point 20 feet in front of you like Mm -hmm. what is that like that's all been simplified for you through the and it's actually a lot of tricks too when you actually start making one of those you realize it's not actually what you think it is 
I like to think of it a lot like the Power Rangers uh, in, in an example. Um, so, I, you know, I love the Power Rangers. I watch it with my kids. But uh, so you, you see them when they're in the Zord, right? So they're all in this big, giant mecha robot Zord mm-hmm. fighting these monsters. And they have some control stick in front of them, like a joystick or whatever. And so they issue their command and like, oh, fire sword attack. And they all push the, the, thumb, <laughs> the, the joystick forward. And then the, the Zord jumps in and slashes and punches. Mm-hmm. And, and they're like, oh, we've got to run away. And they push the same thumbstick right. forward. Yeah. They didn't make the exact same so motion right. each right. time. And these super complex things are happening. Yeah. And it's like, how do we translate that? The metaphor, as, yeah. you, as you say, how do we take these simple commands and, and translate them to these very um, potentially complex interactions in a believable way? And that's mm-hmm. also super kind of important. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. it's yeah. an and- odd thing. Right. You also mentioned, and I know this isn't exactly what Adam was asking because he was more concerned about, um, you know, two-dimensional world, three-dimensional world. Mm-hmm. I think your answer is like, you know, what are you trying to express? So mm-hmm. you as a designer, what are you trying to express? But now I think we're really starting to focus more on the player experience. Yeah. It's not about the world and how it's represented. It's about how is the, the player uh, experiencing. Uh, yeah, Adam, we're not <laughs> answering your question. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm not playing your game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's... Um, it is a complex subject, and there, and maybe we don't actually know what Adam's asking, or maybe maybe no one does. <laughs> what is anyone asking really? Because um, even even so, our bodies are simplified actions for what our brains are trying to do. And yeah, no, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> that's too far. That's too that's matrixy. Too for me. far. Yeah, we're gonna wake we up. We're, go in, we're, yeah, we're in like yeah. some vat of, of goo. <laughs> um, I don't know. Do you have any more on the topic? I don't feel like we've maybe answered anything, but I'm cool with that. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I had a point and, I, and I've forgotten it, so let's just move on. Yeah. Uh, so I guess we'll summarize by this. How do the character controllers connect players to gameplay worlds? Uh, very complicatedly. And then how does dimensionality affect experience um, with practice? I don't know. How does one get to Carnegie Hall practice? Mm. Uh, anyway. Before a couple of these other topics, let's get to some of the other questions, maybe. Um, So Christian had asked us, what are some books about video games and their creation that you recommend? I recently read Masters of Doom, and it was an incredible read. Um, Thank you, Christian. First off, I've never heard of that book. I'm going to have to check it out because that sounds pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. Um, What do you think, Mike? Um, My first initial gut reaction is like, why are you asking about books? Because... (laughs) In today's day and age, um, uh, it would seem to me that the best place to learn about how games are made is actually the internet. Because uh, uh, believe it or not, after 12 years of working on AAA games, uh, working on one of the most uh, popular franchises in modern uh, gaming history, I really didn't know much about game making. And mm. set upon it, you know, since I was on this quote-unquote semi-retirement or sabbatical, call it what you will. I thought, I'm going to learn how to make my own game. And um, in fact, really didn't use any texts except for maybe yours. Thanks Uh, for that. I'm going to interject and just say I write books and I still highly recommend the internet. Mm. I mean, let's be completely Mm. honest. I don't use books to learn what I write into my books, you know, and... Now, that that said, um, uh, I learned how to... Uh, script by uh, simple games mm-hmm. uh, from the internet mm-hmm. is really the answer. Whether it was the online manual, uh, the user forums, submitting bugs and then getting responses from the developer saying, oh, it's not actually a bug, but you have a misunderstanding sure. of how the system works. And then really YouTube videos of 
just really generous individuals saying, I really want to share what I've learned. Mm -hmm. And then they show you how they do something and you watch two or three different approaches to how to solve the same problem. And next thing you know, you've, you can really solve a lot of problems in, in game development. Sure. So if you wanted to learn a tool or mm-hmm. to make a game, I would say that's where you go. But um, I remember in my undergrad days having a professor come up to us halfway through the semester and apologizing, saying, you know, I've been around um, this subject for so long, I've forgotten what you may or may not know mm-hmm. walking into the room. Sure. And it's come to my attention. Some of you are are lost. And me, again, I'll go back to my Asian heritage. I always thought it was my fault. <laughs> that I had no <laughs> idea what was going on. But all the uh, uh, frat guys in the class were like, uh, we don't get this. You know, that, mm-hmm. there were no frat guys. Yeah, I was raised Catholic. Yeah. I completely get it. Uh, the yeah, whole yeah. guilt thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like this is like a structural, um, theoretical and applied mechanics. Like there's no frat guys in those classes. But anyways, some <laughs> back. This was the '90s. Come on. Yeah, I no, mean... this is like Revenge of the Nerds era. Um, Nerds. Uh, so no, some guys had approached the professor and explained to him, you know, we don't. We don't actually get what you mean when you're saying the unit vector is doing this or whatever. Mm-hmm. whatever. So, um, so he he took a step back and he and he went back to basics. And I think that's where a book can come in uh, very handy if you don't have any prior experience or ac- access to the gaming community or feel too shy to to make a presence on forums and stuff. Yeah. The rigor that goes into publishing a book requires that the vocabulary used be well-rounded and generally accurate. Um, So that would be a great way to learn the keywords that will help you find the content you need to find online. So, yeah. So I'll backstep and say, um, kind of rephrase what Mm -hmm. I just said because it just made it sound like I believe everything I'm doing is pointless. (laughs) But um, that's not the case. Um, So a couple of things. Really, most of the books that exist shouldn't. Um, only, and they kind of still exist due to just like paper money, society holding onto these things mm-hmm. that aren't super necessary because they existed in a time before the other tools existed, mm-hmm. you know, before internet and things like that. So I don't use books to write my books because no such things exist, really. Um, a lot of the books are written and they're not very good. Um, I actually decided to write my first book because most of the offerings in the area were inadequate. And I thought, well, I could just bash on these books, but everyone always says, hey, can you do better? So I'm like, well, I'll give it a try. And I don't know if I've succeeded or not, but I, I, I do that. And maybe they're all thinking the same thing. Books have, as you said, they're, in my opinion, books are great for teaching you what you don't know. Um, Someone always says, you know, hey, when are you going to write an advanced book? Well, I'm not going to write an advanced book because what would be the point of that? There's a reason there aren't advanced books. I'm sure there are some advanced books. But really, once you get to the level of advanced, you know the questions to ask. You just go find the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what all of the things are and you know what you don't know. So you just want to go know about these specific things. Mm-hmm. Also, there's really no identifying what one person would consider advanced and another person intermediate mm-hmm. or even beginner, right? If you're great at math, then advanced math concepts might be very trivial trivial to you. So books have a a, a useful thing in fundamental baseline knowledge. And there's also a very, at least in my mind, a very special permanence to them. I, even though I use the internet for most of my research, I would very much prefer to use a book. Very much prefer to use Mm -hmm. a book because to me, there's something about how quickly you can access the data. The data is always there. You're never trying to find the web page. You're not... 
slogging through a video. Uh, the more I use the internet, the more I'm just like, can we please skip the first three minutes of every video and the first mm -hmm. two paragraphs yeah. of every article? Because mm -hmm. the first two paragraphs of every article is, hey, do you know there's this problem that exists? Yes, I do, because I'm here reading <laughs> right. your article. Like, right. let's get through your introduction and thesis. Let's just yeah. just tell me the answer. Yeah. Same with videos. Like, mm -hmm. you have to watch someone's insufferable intro mm -hmm. video and then the introduction and sort of a highlighting of a problem. And I was like, please, just get yeah. to the point. And with a book, I can just – I want to know where the code is. So I just scroll mm -hmm. until I see yeah. code syntax. Right. And I'm like, oh, that's the code. Yeah. Okay, I can highlight it. I can – all these things. Stuff that you can do electronically with the internet, but it's just so much faster and so much more permanent with the book. It's mm -hmm. not going anywhere. Um, so there's a lot of value in that to me. A lot of people are not good learners from the internet, and so books have a lot of value there. Um, so I guess to kind of circle back to the question, there are there are a few books I would recommend specifically about video games, and there's quite a few I'd recommend not about video games that I believe have helped me a lot in video games. Um, so the obvious game books that I really like, um, one of, I think the most well-rounded is probably Fundamentals of Game Design by Ernest Adams. Um, it is a great general view of the idea of game design. Um, video games, yes, but kind of all games. And there's a lot of things that, that Ernest writes about in his book that I don't necessarily agree with, but it's still a pretty solid fundamental, like... Here's a shotgun approach to game design, right? Uh, let's just hit every to topic possible. Um, and so I, I think it's a really good uh, groundwork. Um, Level Up by Scott, I think it's Rogers. It's got something or other. Um, it's a red binder book. It's really good. Um, I like it because a lot of the drawings are hand-drawn <laughs> and stuff, and I can really associate with that. And uh, my next book is actually going to be like where I just hand illustrate because I'm a terrible <laughs> yeah. artist. So um, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. But um, I've just, you know, a lot of the concepts in that book felt really good and a lot of the industry explanation like, hey, you've heard this term a million times. Ever wonder where it comes from? Well, I was there. <laughs> so this is where yeah. it came from, you know, and you're just like, oh, okay, yeah. fair enough. That's really interesting. Um, so I really like those two books. Um and there is a third one about games uh, that I am drawing a blank on. Um, uh, there, there is the um, uh, Principles of Artificial Intelligence Programming for Games by Example. I think it's a super long title. Um, it's got a picture of some guy's face made with stars and points on the cover. But that book is awesome because it's like, hey, you want to skip all of the theory about artificial intelligence and just actually make some? <laughs> let's do that. <laughs> And like first chapter, you're just like, hey, man, let's we're writing this code. It's C++ C++ and we're going to write these routines for actual AI. And you're just like, heck, yeah. <laughs> so uh, from the very moment you start reading it, every page has interesting, mm -hmm. useful information on it, which is super rare for any book or internet medium or whatever. There's always tons of chaff and a few nuggets. And that book is really, really solid. Um I've been talking a long time. So before I transition to my non-gaming books, mm -hmm. do you have gaming books? Um, I know because – Yeah, yeah. There, I would – hearing you talk jogged my memory and now I apologize. I'm Great. not as well prepared for this portion of our uh, our podcast. That's what makes it fun. It's yeah. off the cuff. Yeah, it's off the cuff. But you're talking about that like the hand-drawn art mm -hmm. and like making it you know enjoyable. It's fun to look at and it's, and it's approachable. Uh, a Theory of Fun, which I think is beyond its first edition now. And it's written by oh, what's his bucket from MMO guy, the good guy. Uh, Rob Pardo. No, 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 no. Um, oh shoot, 
I know what he looks like, and his name just slipped out of my head. But anyways, it's a book called A Theory of Fun. A Theory of Fun. Um, okay. Which is not about a specific genre of games. Um, but about the theory Or of about fun. video games specifically, other than you may really enjoy video games and you may find them, quote unquote, fun. But what do you really mean by that? Like, how, mm. is there a way of understanding this concept of fun mm-hmm. in a more um, meaningful way? concrete way and he goes sure. and he illustrates like is this what fun could be you know and so mm-hmm. i thought that was it was always a very light way of getting into the idea of hey designing a game is actually a very intellectual process right sure and, yeah and even if it's quote unquote just about the simplicity of fun you have it's to really think about process, it. yeah you have even. to really think about it mm-hmm. um and then as far as helping me learn how to make games the last time i read a book that I felt like, wow, this really helped make my career was back in the days when uh, there were no free versions of any kind of software mm-hmm. and you had to you know, come back from Southeast Asia with a CD-ROM burned <laughs> with the latest wares, but there was no manual. When wares was spelled yeah, with Z. Yeah, then you'd go to your local, um, uh, you know, uh, Borders books, you know, like mm-hmm. it just doesn't, ex- doesn't exist anymore. Does, yeah, maybe, yeah. <laughs> um, you would... Uh, get this how to use such and such app, you know, mm-hmm. app or application. Um, and you'd learn from that. Mm-hmm. That would be your manual and you'd learn how to, like, I can't tell you, the modern video game industry is born out of the people getting ready access to software, teaching themselves how to use it, going to software companies saying, you could hire me. And they're like, great, I'll hire you because mm-hmm. you know how to use this obscure software that very few people have had access to. Yeah. Um, so that's and I think that's built on theft. Yes, yes. And I think <laughs> that is probably why Autodesk and you know Unreal and Unity uh, all make their software free at a certain level because, dude, this is how people get to learn and how it's to getting use stolen anyway. Yeah, it's gonna get it stolen anyways. <laughs> yeah. We might as well make sure that we've got the best market share. People learn it. Once they learn it, they don't want to give it up, and so it just becomes ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, look uh, at Photoshop. Yeah, I mean, there are alter- yeah. are alternatives, but let's. Be completely yeah. honest. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that was the last time I was like, wow, this thing really make, made or break uh, something for mm-hmm. me. Uh, but there was a book that I enjoyed, and I think it was like Game Architecture and Something or Other. It was uh, ostensibly about uh, programming. But mm-hmm. there were, I, as I recall, no actual examples of code. Instead, it okay. was from an engineering perspective, how would one break a game project down you mm-hmm. could do it this way you could do it that way it's these are the pros and cons yeah. uh, let's talk about your personnel who's on board Who, like are they this type of personality then mm-hmm. think about this problem or that problem it's um, interesting that you would list a book like that because back when i taught mm-hmm. i had access to free reference versions mm-hmm. of books to, to test down stuff like that and i got several books like that and i started reading them and i'm just like this is useless and i'd stop reading it because Again, very different backgrounds. You very much from a personal, uh, you know, approach to these things. And me, I guess, more from a programming mechanical mm-hmm. where I'm just like, I don't really care what the personalities yeah. of people in my team are. I don't really care how you would break. You know, I'm yeah. just going to do, do this thing, you know. Um, so it's interesting, again, these kind of parallels where, uh, or I guess perpendicularity, yeah. if you will. Yeah. Um, For me as a game artist or a level designer, I never really thought about, oh, you have to have a strategy and then you map out the architecture of the game mm-hmm. to allow all these role players to do things at the right times. Sure. Um, so that's when I gained this kind of cross-discipline appreciation for things. So that book, um, again, I can't remember the title. It was Game Well, if you remember, we'll yeah. I just remember it had an orange cover. I'm sure there's been many editions of it since then. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Okay. And um, everything else that I've read from a text perspective has been more of a from a management perspective, sure. like how to deal with people. Because on in game development, um, what gets your foot in the door is your ability to execute a certain style of work. It's only once you have to scale it you, to a you yeah. know because you are now working for a major publisher or now you're working you for a platform team. holder. Yeah. Now the team has to work at a much larger level. Mm-hmm. That's a skill that I think very few of us ever had. So you know you're picking up all these training manuals. Of yeah. Well, I mean, there's the stereotype of the no, non-charismatic game dev anyway. Yeah. So the whole that yeah, that's very valuable skill set. So 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 on my list of books that aren't necessarily game books, but I've I've really enjoyed there. I I every few years I just throw away all of my books. That's not true. I like donate them or mm-hmm. give them away or whatever. I don't actually throw them away. But uh, there's basically just been a few that I've kept. Mm-hmm. I rarely keep books because I'm never gonna mm-hmm. read them again, sort of thing. But uh, so some of the ones I've kept that that have really been sort of impactful from that regard. Um, one of the ones is a book called Encode, and it's not even about programming, and it's not about games it is about it's it's written um from a a, a female i believe in ireland who won an internship to work at a computing company and it's all about math and she won math awards and then went and worked and helped like work on like triple aes encryption and things like that and so it was all about math and encryption and security protocols and stuff but what it was really enjoyable is is sort of the approach to and again it was sort of autobiographical, but at the same time, there were a lot of little math pieces thrown in mm-hmm. there, and I don't know something about that really resonated with the way sort of the, some of the math things worked and the way encryption algorithms were explained that made you kind of appreciate these very complex mathematically based systems from a, oh, it's just like shaking hands. Oh, it's just like uh, sending uh-huh. a briefcase with uh-huh. two locks on it instead of one. Uh-huh. And something about that made me, I guess, evaluate complex systems in a kind of different way. And so I've really appreciated that book because now you look at this really complex system and where some people might say, man, how would you build something like that? And I will try to look at it and say, well, let's just pull one piece off of it. And how would you build that? Now let's pull the next piece. And you realize that every complex system is just Legos, Mm -hmm. right? It's just these little pieces that are fundamental and basic and just stacked to get this illusion of this really complex thing. Um, so Encode, great book. Okay. Um, another one would be The Worldwide Mind. Um, and The Worldwide Mind takes one kind of basic premise that I really enjoy. And the premise is, if I was able to communicate brain to brain with you, no eyes, mm-hmm. no ears, no mouths, brain to brain, over the internet, how would it be possible and what would it look like? And that's the whole premise of the book. And so just like... Hey, everything you think like about the Matrix, that's yeah, not that's not possible. Mm-hmm. Everything you think about injecting games in your brain, that's not possible. Mm-hmm. Here's how it would actually work because this is how your brain actually works. And that was super interesting to me uh, because I think a big part of game design and game development is uh, neurology, is understanding brains, mm-hmm. is understanding how we think and, and, and evoke motions and how the brain is – physically constructed. And so that book says, hey, I could, I could send you the, th- I can't, I couldn't send you an image of a yellow chair. Mm-hmm. Couldn't happen. 
because our brains have lived in isolation our entire lives mm-hmm. and they only get electronic signals through our organs so they have they would have, they don't, we don't speak the same language mm-hmm. our brains literally do not speak the mm-hmm. same language we've developed our own patterns mm-hmm. for understanding but i could so i couldn't send you an image of a yellow chair but i could send you the idea of a yellow chair now you would imagine your own yellow mm-hmm. chair i couldn't control right. which yellow yeah. but that but i could get you to think about a yellow chair mm-hmm. Just as I could think mm-hmm. about a yellow chair. And so then the idea sort of becomes, okay, I can't give you exact experiences, but I can give you your own experiences mm-hmm. in a kind of fuzzy cloud-like mm-hmm. way. And then it goes on to talk about, you know, different experimentations with the way neurons work, uh, uh, using plant algae uh, to use photo to photoreceptors to generate electronic stimuli that ultimately in a lab environment allowed scientists to cure Parkinson's in a rat using lights and and um, uh, op- uh, 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 fiber optics mm-hmm. and they're like, just weird like hey this is how your brain works check this out and it's that whole like oh, okay so I get how your brain starts processing these things and I, I, to me I feel that that's kind of useful information as a game designer, right? I can't give you this experience, mm-hmm. but I can give you an experience and your brain's going to decode or deconstruct that however you want. It's not up to me. So in that, you know, that is always interesting to me when you hear like a student say, I'm going to make the players fall yeah, in love with my character. Right, well, right. well, are you? Yeah. All you can really do is make the character likable and put them there. Mm-hmm. You you can't do that. Right. The brain, they don't speak the same language and, and, not everyone has the same type and or the right. same values, and it's, maybe you can't do that, right? Um, and so that book is really, in my mind, useful for that. Um, another book, I believe by C- Brian Christensen, called The Most Human Human, is about the Turing test and how you know people come and they take tests against these chat box clients and they determine whether it's a person uh-huh. or whether it was right. a machine. Uh-huh. And the Turing test says if you can try, if you can fool 33%, I think it's 33%, something like that, of all people, then you've achieved real AI, right? And to my knowledge, none of the ones have passed the Turing test, but, uh, but they've gotten close. Well, as a side award, so the, the, any machine that gets the closest uh-huh. becomes the most human computer. Uh-huh. Well, mixed in amongst all these chat clients is actual people. Um, and they're the mo- the person who convinced most people they're the most they're human. They are mm-hmm. they get the award the most human human. <laughs> and so then the book the, the book is all from this this person's perspective who's a journalist who says, "Well, I want to win this award. Yeah. So what does it mean to actually communicate as a person? What are mm-hmm. the limitations of hardware? What are the limitations of a chat box? What can I do to make the person on the other end know I'm a real person? Uh-huh. So it goes very much into human communication, uh, how ideas are expressed. Again, how the brain synthesizes ideas and stuff like that it has some really cool, like experimental, like neuron communication stuff in it. But um, most of the, what does it mean to be another person as opposed to what experiences can a machine give you really, right? Um, and so that one's that was in, again pretty darn interesting. Um, I've been talking a long time, <laughs> and uh, there's one more book that I don't quite remember now. Anyway, so I guess okay. I'll just stop talking there. Right. But uh, and the only thing I would want to add is uh, because the question uh, mentioned uh, Masters of Doom, which I believe is it's not about how to make Doom or mm-hmm. uh, I'm actually the technical... looking at my bookshelf. Okay, uh, <laughs> the technical stuff uh, behind the game, but more about the history and the personalities behind the making of it. Mm. Um, and so, something that might be interesting if they haven't heard of it before. 
there's a book about the history of the Xbox. I think it was written by Dean Takahashi, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. He's a journalist, uh, but he's I believe he's based near Microsoft because he writes a lot about um, you know the Xbox mm-hmm. um, Microsoft uh, strategy and all. That. So it talk, I I believe this book is about. I haven't read it, but I've read like a chapter of it. I I remember. Um, and I just remember always being impressed with his ability to pick up on rumors about whether it was Halo or the Xbox mm-hmm. history because I had some of the insider perspective. Like, wow, this guy has some good sources because mm-hmm. uh, more often than not, he was right. He was right. Oh, that's um, cool. So I think this book would be a fascinating read for someone who was like, how did Microsoft, the people who made Windows and Word uh, and then maybe Internet Explorer, mm-hmm. make the decision to enter the console war mm-hmm. and become number two yeah. for at least a couple of generations. So, um, Sure, yeah. yeah. So I think that, you know, like how does – how does that? How does that happen? What are the that was an, yeah? Involved? You're right. And it yeah. really it was an interesting strategy. Yeah. So um, I oh god I can't again. I'm not prepared. But look up the history of the Xbox. Mm-hmm. Dean Takahashi, I believe. Is if you come up with it, and again, if you yeah. come up with the title, I'll post it. Okay. All right. So that last book, real quick. I don't want to keep going on with it, but um, uh, the book uh, had to do with EQ um, as opposed to IQ, um, and I believe it was titled Emotional Intelligence, mm-hmm. and so it was basically how people can be intelligent emotionally and how like some people are really bad at recognizing when they're sad. Maybe they just don't even know they're sad because mm-hmm. they don't really know what that emotion is. Or if they're sad, why are they sad? If they're happy, mm-hmm. why are they happy? Some people are really good at it. Some people are mm-hmm. really bad at it. Just like some people have a high IQ and a low IQ. Mm-hmm. Some people have a high EQ and a low EQ. But what was most imp- really cool about that book is the first, I think, like 40% of it walks us through every stage of evolution of humans mm-hmm. and as each piece of the brain is added and what does that do for us. Huh. And so that that sheds a lot of light into how to tap into the emotions of another person. And as a storyteller, that's really what you're going mm-hmm. for. Um, one of, I think, the most interesting kind of viewpoints um, in that is why being angry is so easy Um and why staying angry is so easy. And, and really, um, there's a part of your brain that when you're angry, releases this chemical. And what the chemical does is it makes you feel good and makes you want to stay angry to release more of this chemical. Mm-hmm. And it's this feedback loop, yeah. and you have, sort of have to snap yourself right. out of it. It's like a, a small-term like, addiction to being yeah. angry. So you just right. you seethe, and you get more and more yeah. angry. And yeah. you, once you recognize that about yourself, and you're like, I'm not actually angry. There's yeah. just a chemical in my brain yeah. right now that's right. saying, hey, keep being angry because this is fun. Right, I feel right. powerful. Yeah. I feel yeah. majestic. You know, yeah. like oh, I should probably stop that. It's the dark side of the force. Exactly right. Yeah. But this book was very interesting from that, like differentiating differentiating what the different parts, you know, the neocortex, prefrontal cortex, and what they all do, and and how the feedback loops in your auditory senses and and, and stuff like that, how they work, and um, and that was really really cool because again, understanding the human brain, I think, is kind of one of the most important parts. Even if you don't do it from an educational standpoint, but you just sort of intuit it, like, hey, I'm going to make my players feel this. I don't. I just feel this is the right yeah. way to go about it. And then you look scientifically and think, oh, yeah, that really was the right way to go yeah. about it. Uh, I think there's a lot to know there. And, and I guess there's a lot to manipulate people mm-hmm. with there. It's kind of, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, you're basically reading security manuals with the intention of learning how to hack a system effectively. Yeah. You know, Hey, you're going to have this natural, uncontrollable, instinctual response mm-hmm. this way. I'm going to use that, yeah. you know. I mean, you're not going to be able to control it at all, and I'm going to use it against you. And for good or for evil, it is what it is, right? Um, but that book was really, really insightful into that, and I thought that was pretty cool. But uh, that question was uh, 
from Christian. Okay. By the way, I don't know if I said oh, that thanks, previously. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think you did. Yeah. So I think we got time for, for one more here. We're actually okay. kind of at time, but there's one more that I thought was enjoyable uh, from Patrick, uh, which is what are some things that really annoy you in the current video <laughs> game industry? And so I'll let you start, Mike. Oh, man. what There's so much that annoys me. <laughs> um, one thing that really, really annoys me right now is uh, how most of us learn about the development of titles through online media and that online media is all driven on um, views, page views. And, you know, it's Wait, basically man. all clickbait. Do you, are you saying that books would be the better way? Like, what are you saying? What I'm saying. What do you mean by the development of, do you mean the how to or oh, how is the game coming along? Yeah. yeah. Uh, as a consumer of games mm-hmm. and I'm excited about it. Uh, I do, I do not access the developer directly. Mm. I do not um, subscribe to a newsletter, um, fan interviews. Uh, there's there's nothing like that. I get it through websites that are designed to get me to click on a story. Clickbait. Yeah. clickbait. It's all clickbait, and mm-hmm. uh, that really annoys me because it's not it's not real, uh, in my opinion quality journalism and it's not it doesn't present accurate information that's that whole uh, yeah. ethics and journalism yeah of, yeah and, and that's part yeah. of what my annoyance is right now and obviously it's not just you mm-hmm. and so sorry i know you yeah. were you had a follow-up thought there yeah. but uh, uh the, the the platform fig right that we talked about previously uh-huh. i believe one of the tenets of that was these devlogs hear yeah. from the developers yeah. how it's going mm-hmm. um now I'm going to do a little plug here. Sorry. Um, but we launched a website called Made With Unity um, where the whole intention was, again, developers telling their story. Mm-hmm. Let's build a relationship between mm-hmm. the developers and their players. Let's let's see their devlogs firsthand. Let's watch this mm-hmm. progress. Um, it was just launched. But, you know, normally I wouldn't mm-hmm. bring up work-related mm-hmm. stuff on this, but it just seemed apropos. That sounds very, very interesting. And I'd like yeah. to check it out because I do believe – we are – this is an evolutionary dead end. You cannot continue to consume information yeah. about video games through the current junket system that publishers again, bringing yeah, people in. The devs themselves have plenty of reason to lie. Mm. <laughs> you know yes, what I'm saying? Yeah, like, you can't really right, trust them right. either. That's true. But um, I think if I were given the software to beta test or mm-hmm. early access or you know all that stuff and I could read that – like if I'm interested in the story mm-hmm. of this developer – um, I'd rather be the person who's lying to me, <laughs> be the first party, not sure. some middleman. You don't want secondhand shill, lies. Yeah, who's trying to get clickbait, uh, no, re- ad revenue, um, and is just putting up BS stories after BS story. Sure. Trying to um, create news or buzz uh, that draws people to the website to consume information about games that's not genuine. Uh, that leads into my next annoyance, also media-based, mm-hmm. on all these outsiders of the industry cri- criticizing. And this goes, like, I think Jade Raymond put it best. It's like, stop bitching about all the problems that we have as game makers and solve the problems. Like, there's so much stuff we Give can do. Give an doing. example. Um, okay, like um, ageism in games, in the games industry. Okay. Personally, I don't believe it exists. Uh, I've seen plenty of 50-plus old uh, gamers still working in the industry doing very good things. Do you think that is – so the whole idea of ageism, mm-hmm. I guess I guess this is a tangential question, but do you think do you think ageism is a cause of a lack of an older generation in the industry or do you think it's 
merely an interesting correlation. Because I could see, because there there are fewer older people in the mm-hmm. industry. That's just, that is mm-hmm. what it is. But it could be ageism or it could be that the industry is not that old. It could be that for a long time it was a very grueling work environment. Mm-hmm. So people left. Yes, after a period of time, and they mm-hmm. didn't want to stick around. I'd absolutely agree like that, that yeah. if ageism at all exists in the game industry, it's that it is a lot, a lot like professional sports in that uh, the way the work is set up, it is too punishing to do mm-hmm. for 30, 40 years. And it, it is something that, that you can do. Yeah. better at those yeah. things. It is very potential that mm-hmm. we'll see this. But what I believe more is probably truer is that if you are not an and let me preface this. I don't know any of the people who have necessarily said there is ageism in the games okay. industry because I'm a victim of it. I don't know any of those people personally. I've never worked with any of them, sure. et cetera. But to hear the media pick up on the story and say, it exists, it exists. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I have met plenty of people who are burned out, who burned out of the industry or uh, were managed out of the industry. Mm-hmm. If you have worked on dozens of titles, and have met hundreds, in that time, hundreds of peers, mm-hmm. you must have a professional network so deep yeah. that if you needed to get a job within a couple of days, you'd have leads that you could be following up on. You know, if, if you follow Twitter, right, mm-hmm. if you follow game devs on Twitter, anytime there's a layoff, anytime – you just see everyone like, oh, contact me. Oh, mm-hmm. these, these people need help. Like every – it's mm-hmm. like a huge safety net, yeah. a network. And you see these – I mean I'm not saying that people haven't experienced real ageism. Mm-hmm. I have no idea, right? But they could also just be assholes. That's my point. I mean let's be We are honest. hearing three or four voices. You don't know their work history. You don't mm-hmm. know them personally. So for the media to pick – a few stories out and say this Three is exists. obviously a correct sample size. Yeah, it's for like an no, you know, I've known too many people who, frankly, aren't making games right now because you can't work with them. Yeah, you cannot, you know, or they chose not to keep up with their core market. Mm-hmm. You're making a product for an audience. If you choose, uh, oh, you know, that filmmaker, the guy who. Um, he made clerks and Kevin Smith. Yeah, Kevin Smith. He had a great point once. He's like, the reason why I started to fail as a filmmaker is because I had gotten too far away from the source. Mm-hmm. I was still trying to make films for the audience that I was feeding when I was 20 years old, mm-hmm. but I'm not anymore. I'm a dad with kids. Those are the things that I am in touch with. Yeah. And so when I tried to make this good, product, because look at every Adam Sandler yeah. movie since. <laughs> yeah, it's like if you're if you are trying to make a product for a specific audience, but you do, do not stay genuinely not in, tar- in touch mm-hmm. with that audience, then fewer and fewer content makers are going to have use for your mm-hmm. point of view. And so yep. it's, it is on the developers, uh, it's the developer's responsibility to stay uh, up to speed Current. on their own time mm-hmm. with the product that they're trying to make. Yeah, if you're not willing to do that, it's yeah. really not the correct right. industry. Yeah. I mean, if you're not working nights and weekends. So I that. hate that. Not It's not that I hate ageism. I hate that the media has picked up on Sensationalism. These, yeah, sensationalized mm-hmm. stories of that ilk when these, I'm sure these journalists have very limited working experience in the industry uh, and have a limited sample set of points of view on whether or not this thing actually happens. It's one thing to say this person was not hired for a job. Mm -hmm. It's another thing to say that person was not hired for this job 
because of this reason, because that person said so. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that is not journalism. And that's what you see a lot of, a Jur- lot of this stuff. Oh, on Kotaku, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm all this bullshit out Jump there. right on the train with you there. You're right. That is one of the things from the industry where you're just like, what is this crap? Like yeah. you can say something neutral and one source will just be like, this is the most amazing thing ever. And the other person's like, see, it means the world mm-hmm. is coming mm-hmm. or the world, the end of the world is coming. To me, the media is like that kid on the trampoline that just screws everyone else up by either doing the whole double jump or you end up flying <laughs> way up in the air right. yeah. or or grounding you. So yeah. when you hit the trampoline, you don't bounce. It feels like you're hitting concrete yeah. and you just crumble. Like that kid, that's media, yeah. right? They pick yeah. one thing and they boost it way right. out of proportion and they just sort of bury everything else. So so just by saying, hey, we're going to skyrocket these things and we're going to mute every mm-hmm. other channel so you have no choice but to pay attention <laughs> right. to these yeah. three stories mm-hmm. um, and we're just going to blast it on every right. channel. Um, yeah, the media kind of sucks. But you know, we can take solace in the fact that the media sucks in every facet of every industry. So it's not just ours. I mean, look at the media as far as you know, politically, sports, mm-hmm. every medium or every media mm-hmm. – sucks pretty much mm. every journalist at some point right. kind of sells their soul right. and i'm sure there are great journalists i'm not saying all journalists are terrible people but there are a lot that ruin it yeah forever. i think yeah i think i guess what my complaint is the signal to noise ratio because mm-hmm. there are like i still go to these websites why because there are genuinely good editorial mm-hmm. content or other types of content um, but those are just said, used to but, promote clickbait yeah just <laughs> but there's just so much clickbait to wait through and yes you're mm-hmm. right you know what i go to cnn.com and the last half of that front page is nothing but promoted clickbait stories yeah they're not even made by cnn like Huffington so Post. it's like holy cow i yeah. don't get like what wh- what happened to the old maybe i'm getting older it's like yeah. the old internet was you went to this website and you're only getting content from these sources from within the website you know I just, and, I, and i feel like that doesn't exist website and it's just yeah. like these two guys discovered how to make a multi-million dollar indie game scientists hate them they're like click here <laughs> to learn this one weird trick yeah. to make an yeah, immediate like, like oh, break it like yeah it's it's terrible yeah and, but yeah, so I, guess I the wish there was another. Yeah, I wish there was another revenue way for journalists to, and maybe really it's us as consumers are at fault. If is, we subscribe to news sources like we used to subscribe to newspapers, they wouldn't have to say like, "crap, how do we serve still our customers?" And that's kind of the they would just maybe double up and hedge. Their maybe beds. they would. Maybe they yeah, would. It's hard to say, yeah. but you know, it's the evolution. Every every what do I say? Fan mm-hmm. looks at journalism and they know this problem. Everyone knows this is a problem. And they say, you know what? I'm going to build a real, unbiased, great journalist's site. And they do. And then they get buried in debt because they don't yeah. have the clickbait yeah. to bring yeah. everyone. So they either sell out or they go under because mm-hmm. it's just the environment that's set up. Yeah. And there are – I know some journalists who I really like their stuff, mm-hmm. Right. And I enjoy reading their stuff, and I think it's really thoughtful stuff. But unlike most situations where you can say, hey, it's a few people ruining it for everyone, with the media, it feels like it's kind of most of everyone ruining it for the few mm-hmm. good people really yeah. trying out there. But but it is what it is, right? It's, I guess it's a market. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I think the, the, where the future that comes in for us is the premium cable. And I've spoken about this before mm-hmm. at, in, yeah. at um, lectures and whatnot, where like – I go to Netflix or I go to HBO 
And HBO even promotes their own, you know, video documentaries about the making of or the coming ups of their mm-hmm. of the content channels that they want to do. You look at Activision properties; they do this, you know, especially through yeah. Blizzard. You know, you can open up their dedicated app, and you'll get content designed by them to mm-hmm. promote their games. Um, they aren't designed as clickbait, though. You know, you know, they're specifically tailored. They're the tailored to my mm-hmm. gaming interests, and I, I believe in the long term, mm-hmm. more and more publishers move to that model. It's like we can control the message, yeah. we can control the quality of the content. We don't have to by um, keeping it in house. Yeah, and yeah. we're not. And this middleman, the Gawker Media segment of the industry, just disappears over time. Yeah, um, and can't come soon soon enough, in my opinion. <laughs> Uh, you know what else annoys you? Yeah, I was about to say we are running out of time, but uh, so one of the things that kind of annoys me, um, it's it's so hard. There are, there are quite a few things. I guess one of the, the blind, uh, I guess fanboyism. Mm-hmm. Um, I was trying to think of a more gender neutral term. But I guess fanboyism, fangirlism as well. That I can. So you know, you have these people that, fanaticism. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Zealotry. Mm-hmm. They'll hype a product and hype a product. And that's cool. And the, the fun builds and you mm-hmm. get excited. And then it's almost like the exact same people then ruin the experience because if it's not exactly as they wanted, all they do is start tearing it down, mm-hmm. which then just sort of like kicks your legs out from mm-hmm. underneath you. Like, man, I was riding high. I just want to enjoy yeah. this. Right. Like I, every product has flaws. Yeah. Every product mm-hmm. has flaws. And, you know, it, I'm, just as you know, no product comes out the way you thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Right? Everything has flaws. There are always, um, what do I say, uh, shortcomings. There's always compromise, you know. Um, and so just this sort of rabid extreme in both both ways, you know, um, just kind of like it's exhausting almost. Mm-hmm. It's just like, can't we just enjoy something? Can't I in, enjoy an experience or read about something or talk with someone about something without either being the greatest thing ever or the uh-huh. worst thing ever? Can we yeah. just like say, hey. It's bipolar and it's uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah, Can it's I not, just be yeah. like, hey, this is this is pretty cool. Like, you know, I, I put out videos and stuff like that and and – as much as I, as much as I like when people say, "Hey, this is the greatest thing I've ever read or uh-huh. ever watched," uh-huh. okay, cool, that feels good. Sure, uh-huh. but it's probably not true. Uh-huh. Uh, but then you get someone who's like, "You put an extra space in there, go set yourself on fire," and you're like, "That's <laughs> not cool. Like, <laughs> right, that's, right. that's not great." Uh-huh. Like, can we all just kind of right. chill out? I don't know. And I guess, I mean, it really does allude to the passion of the industry and how much people really like it. Uh, but at the same time, humanity is exhausting. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like, let's let's chill a bit. Can we just yeah. relax? <laughs> Take a Percocet, chill out. I don't know. Um, at least that's that's my opinion. I mean, I, I've been known to ride the hype train. I've mm-hmm. been known to, to insult people and, and <laughs> then be proven completely wrong. I bought an HD DVD player. I was <laughs> certain that that was going to be successful. And, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I know how it goes. But at the same time, it's like... It's yeah. been a long time since I've been a fanboy or fanatic about something. I loved the Commodore Amiga, and I think that was the last piece of technology that I allowed myself to evangelize, to uh-huh. really, really want to see succeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, that's when I learned you can't fight the tide. Yeah. Uh, there's only so much you can do. And, you know, and like you're saying, the PC ecosystem at the time was so weak mm-hmm. media-wise compared to, say, what, you know, this Commodore Amiga could do, even though it was getting long in the tooth, even by the time I had discovered it. 
Um, but the real solution is to say, okay, this isn't going to win. Um, and this other system is, you know, or IP or whatever has flaws, but how could it become better? How can we contribute and make it grow? And, and you know, and over time, mm-hmm. you know, what you can do on a PC routinely today far exceeds anything we could have imagined doing on um, an Amiga, you know, so, um, and the same thing was like workstations versus PCs. Do people even know what a workstation is? It's a type of PC. No, a workstation used to be like a $20,000 Unix box that came from Silicon Graphics. Um, and that's what you would, I mean, the, the Nintendo 64 was based off of that. Like that was its big claim to fame. It's like, wow, it's got Silicon Graphics technology mm-hmm. in it. Um, and now we think, what? What are you talking about? It's like PC versus mobile, right? Like, no, right, right, it's right. completely Apple's different. Orders, yeah. yeah, like, so to be, it's sort of like a tattoo. Why be a fanboy of something? It's like, why would you have to have to get this tattoo? In 15 years, you're going to look back at this and be like, why? It. Yeah, why? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah, just that. I, I'm with you on the, we could die, we could be a little bit more detached from the things mm-hmm. that we love, knowing that our interest in this intellectual property um, is not, a reflection on me. And so therefore I'm not like insulted mm-hmm. when it doesn't live up to my expectations. Right. But there is a problem in that it goes back to the, the mango tree theory that mm-hmm. we talked about where, um, when a game can fit an un fill an unmet need, sometimes it fills too much of a need. It does it too well. Yeah. Or yeah. does it too well. You know, I know how many games, you know, either spoken or not spoken, their, mon- their, their, their motive was to become, a fun part of a healthy lifestyle, sort of like breakfast cereal is part of a mm-hmm. healthy breakfast. But instead, it Almost. becomes the lifestyle and yeah. everything in your life revolves around it and it becomes, you know, obsessive or yeah. you find meaning in it. A lot of it, you know, There's goes... There's another topic on that, yeah. Yeah, like creating hooks in games so that the users can create content that makes that elevates them and gives them a presence in the world mm-hmm. or in the in the real world as an expert in the game mm. holy cow like that becomes fulfilling it's yeah. wish fulfillment well, it's like, you know i'm actually quite famous in yeah. ultima yeah it is right. like oh, okay yeah, cool. yeah i mean that's cool but yeah um so i think that's where it's like and then it bleeds into the danger zone of like it it's become my identity and so for it to become insulted or for mm-hmm. it to not live up to my expectations, for it to be reproachable is dangerous yeah. for me because now I now not only can I be personally um, I've vested attacked, so much of me this, into this. This yeah. huge project that I have nothing to do is built by hundreds of people of the thousand ways it could be wrong mm-hmm. reflects on me. And now I feel like, ugh. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh boy, don't get yourself in that position. Like, yeah. yeah, if we could warn you off, don't get in that position. And I mean, again, it all comes back to just common human behavior. If I give you a piece of pizza and say this is the best pizza I've ever had, yeah. you're just like, it's all right. I'm yeah, like, yeah. Oh <laughs> shit! Like I put myself out there. <laughs> right. and, oh man, yeah. I look like a real idiot yeah, right now, yeah. and that's pretty okay. common. But yeah, I mean, just some of the stuff that's kind of like yeah, the, the uh, online emotionality, the multiplayer aggression. Yeah. There's there's a lot there's a lot to be said, and there's. I mean, there are a lot of real problems in the industry. I do believe there is quite a bit of sexism in the industry, and that's really unfortunate. Yeah. Um, uh, especially of the, um, I've not witnessed a lot of outright direct um, sexism, but I'm sure uh, there's been a lot of that that just unspoken. The oh, I didn't even know yeah, that I was like doing microaggression it. stuff. You know, you, or I go to or just a the lot. condescension. I think yeah, that's probably more number one is 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 like, oh, you surprised me in your performance. You know, because you are 
female yeah. or whatever. It's like it's amazing what? how much you'll even you'll witness just as a third party yeah. at like conferences and things like that. But I've found myself doing that, just completely like feeling like an mm-hmm. idiot. Where I'll be talking to a guy, and then he'll ha- be there with some female, mm-hmm. like, "Oh, is this your wife or whatever?" Yeah. No, she's a professional. Mm-hmm. Like, why would I yeah. just assume that she right. wasn't a part? Right. And then I'm just like, "I'm like, God, I'm sorry. Yeah. Like, I, I, I didn't even didn't even like." A, that come to mind right, when right, I was saying it until right. afterwards I realized I was a giant jerk. Right. And yeah. s- and and that's right. You were the giant jerk, right? Yeah. And I was the condescending person or someone I witnessed could have mm-hmm. been the condescending person. It's a problem of individuals. I don't know that it's systemic because in my last major gig, which was at Electronic Arts, mm-hmm. the most, you know, terrible, terrible, terrible developer, um, actually, my boss, a woman, uh, my Immediate peers, though, like all the other dev directors that I worked with, um, um, you know, it was 50-50, male-female. My, uh, yeah, my I, technical I think, art team, 100% yeah. female. My art team, especially in China, was like 30 to 40% female. So There's a lot that can be yeah. said about that, but you're also on the art side. And you do right. see this grand That's true. There were few, there were few, There were fewer engineers uh, that yeah. are female, but... Hey, we're starting somewhere, and like CIA, the school where you yeah. know you and I both have taught or am teaching. Um, you know, in one case, the the class was ninety percent female; in other cases, it's sure. forty to sixty percent female. Oh, yeah. So it's I think it's just better. a matter of time. Absolutely. Absolutely, and I think systemically, the system wants to be balanced because it's good for business. Yeah, if you can. If you can, like, again, it's like Kevin Smith saying, "I'm too far away from the mm. source material." If you want a bigger audience. Or to create a wider uh, breadth of content, yeah. you need people who are closer to those experiences, you know, and absolutely, and and a female perspective. Not they necessarily have a different perspective, but mm-hmm. they, there is a good chance they might have a different perspective. That brings more chances As of always, success. It's one of those things that's great on paper, and then humanity yeah. screws it up. Yeah. So yeah, the problem, right. But, so the sexism but. in the industry that I've seen has not been the that the company or the industry has been set up that way but that we as individuals yeah maybe because i and i joined the industry in the 90s when it was you know the art team might have been 90 percent male sure. and so you get comfortable in a locker room mentality and that has to be worked out because yeah. you might say things to de-stress or take down the tension level and it turns out you just said something that would have made you know someone blush yeah for religious reasons or you know, sexual reasons, orientation yeah. or, you know, gender, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, just we, we have to grow up. It's really a whole Yeah, it's a whole bunch of stuff, do. right? Well, right. And it's a whole yeah. topic we could right. probably talk at right. great length right. on. It's just that, yeah, females as a quote-unquote minority are actually population-wise the majority of our population. So they're a really big one that we should address. I think. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Or could address. It's really obvious. Yeah. Well, at this um, point, we're kind of running out of time. Okay. It feels like we've sort of ended on a down note. So... Well, I don't, no, I don't. I don't know. I think it was an up note because it puts the responsibility for fixing a particular problem on individuals. Yeah, it's not like jerks. it's not like <laughs> it's not like it's bigger than you as an individual to fix this particular problem. Yeah, um, be the change you, you want to see in the world. Yeah, I guess Michael so. Michael Jackson's looking at the man in the mirror, <laughs> asking him how he could change. I mean, his it's ways. A, it sounds. Uh, was it trite to say it that way? But it is that simple. Oh, absolutely. Like, it's to and and like you were saying, emotional intelligence is like applying. Like, hey. Do I think about this person differently based on gender or my mm-hmm. feelings towards that person based, you know, like, yeah. and is that fair? And can I catch myself and with those I think a, a large part of it is, is also recognizing that these natural inclinations we have are based in thousands of years of evolution yeah. and instinct that's kept us alive as a species. And so 
it's okay to maybe have these natural uncontrollable reactions, but maybe you then need to work to right, evolve. Right. It's, it's okay so, to feel anger, but it's not okay to act out. Yeah, it's, yeah. O- it's okay to recognize mm-hmm. this impulse in yourself, analyze it and say, okay, that's interesting. I realize where it's coming from mm-hmm. and then let it go and then don't let that actually affect right. you and how you interact with people and stuff like that. But again, whole topic that yeah. could be said about that. All but right. um, yeah, all right. So I think to just bookend this the conversation started with adam's questions and and um and really what we're saying it's not about the control scheme necessarily or the way you present the oh, world way back but it's about the player mm-hmm. and then at the very end you know with this last question oh, about wow. the problems that we we see in, um you know a lot of the problems we have are actually we create ourselves as, so, so as what people you're saying create. is we've started with and ended with it's all about you <laughs> and really since this is our audience appreciation <laughs> episode, it is all about uh, you. Yeah. You know what? For everyone listening, we planned this. We <laughs> yes, planned absolutely this we for did. it to happen this uh. way. And for all, pretty much all of our answers to kind of be the exact same thing. Um, all right. <laughs> At that rate, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up. Um, as always, feel free to uh, send any comments, questions, whatever. Certainly appreciate them. They certainly help guide the conversation. Um, yeah, if you think we said something asinine, you know, or stupid, get over yeah. it. No, yeah, get over it. No, like, yeah, <laughs> just I'm like, right, you're hey, you wrong. know, actually, I don't think you you have this perspective. I, you know, we could only benefit from hearing. Yeah, the the counter argument. What is argument. it? Uh, wedding singer Adam Sandler. I have the microphone, so you will do everything. That <laughs> how do you I know say? so much about like Adam Sandler and, and uh, how do we? How do you not know? <laughs> anyway, because I'm secretly Adam Sandler. Um, <laughs> All right. We have to rename um, this podcast. So, yeah. Uh, so, thank you all for listening uh, to Mike's Video Game Podcast, Episode 8, the Listener Appreciation Annual Episode. Uh, I am Mike Geig. And I'm Mike Wu. And have a fantastic weekend. It's Bye. Monday. Bye. <laughs> 8 is great. <laughs>